0: Uh, For some years now, I've preached the Word of God from the table rather than the pulpit during the seasons of Advent and Christmas. It's a kind of tangible practice and expression in the life of our church of the way in which we particularly remember and long for the coming of God in Jesus Christ during um, these seasons of the church year. It's a way of sort of practicing that together and setting these seasons apart. Um, In addition, during many of those Advent seasons um, that we've spent together over the last eight years, I've preached short sermon series specifically for the season of Advent um, that are often more theological rather than expositional in nature, as is our normal practice as a church. Over the years, we've covered a number of different theological topics during the season of Advent. We've um, talked about um, the Lord's Supper, for example. Um, We spent one year discussing union with Christ, Um, One year we did um, the four last great things, um, um, death, uh, judgment, heaven, hell, um, together. Um, One year we preached on um, the the flesh of our Lord, what it means that he had a body, both in his birth and his life, as well as his death and resurrection, and now his ascension to God's right hand. We meditated on the body of Jesus. Um, This year, as we move through Advent together, Um, The subject of our sermon series for the next four weeks will be a series of sermons on the topic or subject of prayer, of prayer. Um, Today we'll consider the foundation of Christian prayer, um, which is the continual intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ um, for us at the right hand of God, and, and how our union with him has made us with him into a royal priesthood, how we, when we pray, join our prayers with his. And this is actually the foundation of any understanding of Christian prayer. Um, In other words, we'll consider how it is that it's impossible to talk about Christian prayer without speaking of Jesus as the one who leads us in prayer, the one who is the great prayer to the Father, who is always praying for us and invites us to join our prayers with his. And then over the next, that's what we'll do today, and then the, over the next three weeks, we'll consider three of the, what I would consider, at least the, 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 the scripture talks about, I think, some of the primary challenges to prayer and how Jesus actually perfects our imperfect prayers and perfectly offers them to the Father through his own eternal intercession. Um, for example, next Sunday, we'll consider the infrequency of our prayers, how intermittently we pray, and how Jesus perfects that and teaches us to pray always with him, living a life of constant prayer. We'll we'll talk the following week about the smallness of our prayers and how Jesus teaches us to ask for remarkable things, for big things in his name and offer those prayers to the Father. And then the last Sunday of Advent, December 18th, we'll consider how frequently we grow impatient in our prayer and how Jesus teaches us and actually enables us to pray with persistence, to pray without giving up. But today we want to start at the absolute foundation of Christian prayer, what Christian prayer is uh, fundamentally. And that is that we must understand that prayer is not some kind of thing that we stir up within ourselves, not some kind of spiritual practice or feeling that we we initiate, that we have to start, that that we have to do on our own. No, Christian prayer, rightly understood, is the gift. It's a gift that comes to us. And it's the gift of sharing and participating in, by grace, through the Spirit, in the eternal communion of the Son with the Father. That's what prayer is. It's it's a gift. It's given to us. It's a participation in something that's already happening that by the Spirit we get to participate in the eternal communion that exists between the Son and the Father, and the Father and the Son. That's what we'll be talking about this morning as we think about the foundation of Christian prayer. We've already heard this morning from Exodus 33, where the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend, um, while Israel stood outside the tent, forbidden to enter in and that's an interesting thing because in our Lord Jesus we don't stand outside the tent no Hebrews makes it very clear that we go into the holy of holies into the presence of God with Jesus in a way that Israel could not go with Moses or with Aaron now we've heard also from Romans 8 where Paul teaches us that the the spirit has been poured out into our hearts and it's been poured out into our hearts that we might cry with Jesus, Abba, Father, that we might be adopted as sons and heirs with Christ and pray as he prays and say, Abba, Father, joining in with God's Son as he intercedes for us always at the right hand of God. And we've heard also from the teaching of Jesus himself in John 16 on his last extended teaching that he had with his disciples, where he teaches his disciples to pray in a new way, to pray to his Father in his name, through him. And he promises that when they pray to the Father in his name or through him, through his intercession, the Father will give them all things. And he will give them all things. He says, ask and receive so that my joy may be yours, so that their joy will become like unto the joy of the Son of God as they participate in that fellowship of the triune God between Father, Son, and Spirit. And now finally this morning we're going to hear once more from God's Word, from the epistle to the Hebrews, that great epistle of the ascension and intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly this morning We'll hear from chapter 7, verses 23 to 28. Here the apostle is proclaiming to us that Jesus saves us. And that is a a present tense verb, that he, he is saving even now. To the uttermost, the apostle says, all who draw near to God through him. And how does he do that? He does it because he is living forever in God's presence and making intercession for all those who come to God through him. Listen now once more to God's holy and inerrant word this morning from Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 23. The apostle writes and he says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, Thus far, the reading of God's Word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you, friend, because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts gathered in your presence would be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And I ask this through our Rock and our Redeemer, our High Priest, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I think it's probably fair to say that many of us have what we might describe as a complicated relationship to prayer. I doubt there's many other subjects a pastor could bring up that might make us feel more guilty than prayer. Evangelism might be one, um, but, but prayer um, is certainly up there in terms of um, the kind of complicated things that we feel um, we know that prayer is both a duty and a privilege for the Christian, but many of us are haunted by the sense that we don't really pray as we should, that we really don't. We, we sense that, that, that deficiency, that we, we don't pray as frequently as we ought to. Um, or we might have a sense that our prayer lives are a bit dull, if we're honest. We know it's hard to pray for the overwhelming things in our lives or our world that seem impossible for God to actually do something about and so often we stick with small prayers prayers that seem reasonable or or more likely to be acceptable to God or we might just be weary of prayer we might just be tired of praying we we pray for a week or a month for some specific thing some specific desire and then we, we run out of energy we, nothing changes, and so we give up. These are all challenges in our lives of prayer that many of us experience, that I experience, certainly. And in response to these challenges, I think it's often tempting to look for new techniques, right? That's what modern people do. We're the people of, of, of technique, uh, new techniques of prayer or, or embracing new internal commitments to prayer and, and thinking that somehow these things are going to fix The tension that we feel around prayer in our lives but i'm convinced that much of that tension that we experience with prayer is not fundamentally because of some kind of practical deficiency in our techniques or our intentions but rather it's a theological deficit that exists i think often we struggle to pray because we don't imagine prayer as it actually is We fail to consider the the fundamentally Trinitarian nature of Christian prayer, and so inevitably, often we seek to pray out of our own strength, our own willpower, our own energy, rather than receiving prayer as a gracious gift that our triune God invites us into and provides for us in. In other words, instead of seeing prayer in Trinitarian terms, we often see it in Unitarian terms, right? Right? Under this construct, prayer is about me and God. There's me and there's God. I have to pray so that God will listen. And if I don't pray, then God won't hear. He won't do anything. Prayer is not happening. But interestingly, our own Westminster Larger Catechism doesn't describe prayer that way at all. It describes prayer in fundamentally Trinitarian terms, actually. You can see this on the quote that's printed on the back of your order of worship at the very bottom under the section on the advent season there in question 178 the catechism asks this question it asks what is prayer and it answers in this way it says prayer is an offering up of our desires unto god okay that makes sense in the name of christ by the help of his spirit now that's a catechism question answer that is and question and answer that's worth memorizing, I think. Um, it's, it's all there. Do you see how the catechism is defining prayer in Trinitarian terms, right? Each of the persons of the Trinity are present in that answer. We offer up our desires, the intentions of our heart, to God the Father, but we do so, the catechism says, not by ourselves, not on our own. We do so in the name of Christ, through Christ, that is, and by the help of his Holy Spirit that he has poured out on us. Prayer, then, is not some action that we fundamentally initiate or maintain between us and some far-off deity. No, understood in Trinitarian terms, prayer is entering into a conversation that is already taking place. Prayer is entering into a communion that already exists, that the Son and the Father have eternally shared with one another by the means of the Holy Spirit. This this communion between Father and Son um, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, this has always been true of God. It's the most fundamentally thing that is true of God. And it's always been the case, even before creation, of course, right? John 1 teaches us this. The apostle there says, in the beginning was the Word, meaning um, Jesus, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in the, he was there in the beginning with God. There was eternal communion between the Father and the Son. Genesis 1 follows up on this. We, we see the Trinitarian nature of God when, when Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, right? There, there's already that Trinitarian fellowship between Father, Son, and Spirit. You see, the Son always knew Perfect communion with the Father from before the very beginning of time. But the communion with the Father continues even after the incarnation. Even after the Son unites himself to human nature and human flesh. You see, at his baptism, we see this clearly. The Father is there. He's speaking to the Son. And he's pouring out his Holy Spirit on the Son. He's delighting in his Son. He's calling him his beloved And all through his life, Jesus, the Son, returns that love and communion and fellowship to the Father. Remember how he delights in the Father always throughout his ministry. I and the Father are one, he tells the Jews in John 10. And then in John 11 at the tomb of Lazarus, he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. In fact, I know that you always hear me. Right? He never doubted that his father heard him, that they continued to share that communion. And then in John 17, he, he prays to the father saying, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He knows that he is returning to the bosom of the father. And then at the cross, the son gives himself into the hands of the father saying... Father, into your hands, as he dies, this is what Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, as it turns out, not even death can prevent the communion that exists between the Father and the Son, thanks be to God. In fact, the Son rises from the dead that he might return to the bosom of the Father. As he tells Mary Magdalene on the day of his resurrection in John 20, he says, I am ascending to my Father. But interestingly, something new takes place there after the resurrection of Jesus in his ascension. Now that the Son of God has become incarnate, now he has united himself to humanity, to human nature, to human flesh. He returns to the Father, but he does so not by himself. He goes back to the Father, taking all of redeemed humanity with him into that eternal fellowship that exists in the triune God, right? As John tells Mary in that same passage in John 20, in the full quotation, he says, after his resurrection to her, he says, "'I am returning, I am ascending, rather, to my Father and your Father.'" This is what he says he wants her to tell the disciples. "'I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, "'to my God and to your God.'" He's bringing them in to that fellowship that he has always shared With the Father. In his ascension to the Father's right hand, as the writer of Hebrews will explain, Jesus is going into God's presence and he is taking us with him. For he is going now as our new great high priest. And this will change everything, but certainly will change prayer forever after this event. Interestingly, the Old Testament contains very little explicit teaching about prayer. Now, there are many examples of prayer, Christian prayer in the Old Testament, of course, the Psalms most particularly. Um, But there's not a lot of teaching about what prayer is or how it works or what it does. But interestingly, Jesus' ministry is full of teaching about prayer. It's one of his most prominent topics in his teaching. It's there in the Sermon on the Mount, it's there in parables, it's there um, as he concludes his ministry in Jerusalem um, before his death. He's always talking about prayer. He he teaches his disciples to pray when they ask him, teaching them to say the Lord's prayer. He gives all sorts of practical advice about prayer um, in his teaching. And intriguingly, Jesus's own teaching about prayer shows progression during the life of his ministry. You see, early in his ministry, Jesus' main focus, you see this in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, his main focus is teaching his disciples to address address God as Father in their prayers. He says to them, when you pray, say this, our Father in heaven. Now, this is an earth-shattering shift in terms of redemptive history, right? There's nothing like it in the Old Testament, where People are instructed to address God as Father. But Jesus is doing this. He's he's beginning to invite them into a new kind of relationship with the Father, trusting that the Father loves them and that he's going to give them good things, that they should pray to him with that name on their lips. But then, later in his ministry, at the end of his earthly ministry, in the Upper Room Discourse in John, John 13 to 17, this is Jesus' last recorded extended teaching with the disciples before his ascension. Jesus is now going to introduce something new in his teaching regarding prayer to his disciples. And that is, he's going to teach them that the way in which God is their father is through him. That they actually go to God as their father through him as the eternal son. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says to them in John 14. And no one comes to the father except through me. You have to go through the Son to participate in the life of the Father, to to name him as your Father. And six times in those four chapters, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray in his name. It's the first time in the Gospels that he does this. Again and again, he says, when you pray to the Father, pray in my name. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Ask whatever you would in my name, and I will do it. There's this emphasis at the very end of John that Jesus gives to his disciples of praying in his name. Can you see that Jesus is laying the groundwork here for in his teaching and prayer? What is he doing? He's teaching his disciples to pray to his father as he prays to his father. To call him Abba, Father, using that language from Romans 8. And Jesus is teaching his disciples even more than that to pray with him as he prays to the father. He's teaching them to depend on him as they pray, that he actually is going to be a part of their prayer life, an indispensable part, right? Not just a, you know, an accoutrement, but a central, a central part of what it means to come to the Father is to come to the Father through the Son. That they only can ask the Father in his name the things that they desire and then after ascending to his Father and beginning his eternal priesthood on behalf of his disciples. Do you know what Jesus then does for the disciples? The next step in their life of prayer, what does he do for them? In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, he pours out his Holy Spirit upon them. That same Spirit that the Father had poured out on the Son on the day of his baptism, Jesus now pours out on all of those who follow with him, all of those who belong to him so that the Spirit will lift them up with him and grant them through him to participate in the communion that he enjoys with the Father. Jesus is inviting, bringing his followers into the life of the triune God through his own ministry, through his own pouring out of the Holy Spirit, that he and the Son might come to them and make their home with them, as he promises in John. Beloved, this is what the apostle is talking about, in Hebrews, when he says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. How do they draw near to God? Through him. How does he do it? Since he is always living to make intercession for them. What the apostle means in that text is that even now Jesus is alive. He lives And the only communion that you can have with the Father is fundamentally dependent upon the communion that Jesus has with the Father himself. If that didn't exist, you could not come to the Father, you could not pray to him, you could not call him Father. In fact, your prayers within this construct are not just your prayers. They are offered, as the Catechism says, by the help of the Spirit who dwells with you, who unites you to Jesus, who draws you into him, who who hides your life with Christ in God. They are offered by the help of the Spirit and in the name of Christ so that your prayers are actually taken up by Jesus and offered to the Father through him. You're not just having a dialogue with a Unitarian God. You're participating in the fellowship of the triune God when you pray. As the, Father interce- or the Son intercedes with the Father, you enter into that by the work and power of the Spirit. Beloved, know this this is what prayer is. This is what Christian prayer is, at least. Christian prayer is the gift of sharing and participating by grace through the Holy Spirit in the Son's eternal communion with the Father. Prayer is the gift of sharing and participating by grace, through the Spirit, in the Son's eternal communion with the Father. And that means that prayer isn't something that you somehow stir up within yourself. It's not something that you will yourself and grit your teeth and say, I'm going to pray. No, it's a gift. Prayer is a gift that is given to you. You have to open your hands to receive it. Christ has made himself your brother, so that you, beloved, might have God for your father. And he has poured out his spirit upon you so that you might share in his eternal life now at the father's right hand that what might, might be most true about you is that you have died and your life is hidden now with Christ in God. The church throughout the centuries has reflected deeply on this reality, on the the fundamental nature of the intercession of Christ and its relationship to our prayer today. The church father, Ambrose, who um, was the one who preached the gospel and and led to the conversion um, of um, the church father, Augustine, um, he understood this back in the fourth century. He summarized the relationship between Jesus' eternal intercession for us and our prayers With these words, listen to what he says. Ambrose says, he, that is the Son, is our mouth through which we speak to the Father. The Son is our mouth through which we speak to the Father. The Son is our eye, he says, through which we see the Father. The Son is our right hand through which we ourselves offer ourselves to the Father. Unless he, that is the Son, intercedes, Ambrose says, there is no intercourse, there is no fellowship with God, either for us or for all the saints. It doesn't matter how holy you might be. The only way you intercede or you have fellowship with the Father is through the Son. And he is your mouth as you speak to God. He is your eye as you see God. He is your right hand as you offer yourself to God. All of it is through Christ Christ. Or, as Calvin would put it, about a thousand years later, he says, Now Christ plays the priestly role, not only to render the Father favorable and propitious toward us by an eternal law of reconciliation. And often that's where we stop when we think about the priesthood of the Son, that he's offered himself once for all as a sacrifice for sin, that our sin might be forgiven. But it's more than that, Calvin says, it's more than that, the Apostle of the Hebrews says. Calvin says he does it also to receive us as his companions, as his brothers in this great office. Christ is an eternal high priest so that we would be companions with him in that office, in that calling, that we would be ordained to the same task, Calvin says. He goes on to write, For we who are defiled in ourselves, yet are priests in him, in Christ, and we offer ourselves in him, And are all to God, and we freely enter the heavenly sanctuary, that the sacrifice of prayers and praise that we bring may be acceptable and sweet-smelling before God. Or a few hundred years later, as that great 19th century theologian of prayer, Andrew Murray, he puts it this way: He says, "It is in the intercession of Christ, so his his constant ministry for us." at the Father's right hand. It is in the intercession of Christ that the continued efficacy and application of his redemption is maintained, right? Christ's death and resurrection be all for naught if it were not for his continuing intercession for us at the Father's right hand, his continued life for us, because it is in that intercession that the efficacy and the application of his redemption is maintained for us and for all humanity. And Murray goes on to say, and it is through the Holy Spirit descending from Christ to us that we are then drawn up into the great stream of his ever-ascending prayers. like that The Spirit actually takes our prayers and joins them into the prayers that Christ is offering, even now in this moment for you and for me and for the church. Murray says the Spirit takes us up into the wonderful flow of the life of the triune God. Through the Spirit, Christ's prayers become our prayers, and our prayers are made His. We ask what we will, and it is given to us. We then understand from experience what Christ meant when He said, Murray says, Hitherto you have not asked in my name. At that day you shall ask in my name. So what's the payoff for all of this as we close this morning? So often we think of prayer fundamentally, I think, as a burden, as a duty, as an obligation. And yes, it is a duty, it is an obligation, but beloved, prayer is so much more than just that. Prayer is a gift. It is the gift of participating through the Holy Spirit in what Christ has done and is now doing as he draws us into the communion that he shares with the father and and so beloved as you think about prayer this advent season i want to encourage you instead of seeking to stir up prayer within yourself what i want to encourage you to do is to to seek to enter into the prayers of jesus that are already taking place that are always taking place for you on your behalf beloved make no mistake prayer is a gift it's all gift prayer is all grace We can't do it on our own. We can never do it on our own. It's foolish for us to try. The Son of God has made Himself flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, and He has died and risen again that He might live as our brother in heaven for us, that He might save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through Him because he lives forever to intercede for them. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do ask that this morning you would help us to reflect on the scriptures and on the work of your Son and the way in which he intercedes for us now at your right hand and the way that our lives of prayer are all um, a gift that flow directly from him, Father. Teach us um, to enter into these things with wisdom and grace, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.